My job over the next, you know, hour or so often when Kyle the Cannonball, the corrupter, is involved, we end up dragging on for a little bit longer. But over the next hour or so, we're going to bring you some tangible tips on how you can grow and scale your business. We might talk some shit about the surfing, but we've got a really, really special guest today. So today we are joined by Charlotte Lane. Charlotte is our comms queen. She's also Kyle and I's copy unicorn. She's traveled the world studying interpersonal communication. And after running her copywriting business, she realized that there was more to what she was doing than just words. So she's now transitioning into helping you, helping young adults and helping you to find their voice and their stability and teaching them how to communicate better and earlier so they can take control of their future. What I have loved about having having Charlotte as part of Kyle and I's teams is she's been able to help us communicate better. So really helping us to build culture within the APT business, which is Kyle's business. And because we recently did a whole culture overcall. And if you haven't heard about that and all the things we did, go check out Kyle's episode or our last barrels business and beer o'clock because <laughs> we go deep on that. But I wanted to invite Charlotte onto this conversation today because I really feel the session she did with the team made the biggest impact, helping them to understand communication skills and that communication isn't just the words coming out of your mouth. There's so much more about that. And as Kyle mentioned earlier, we left a bit of a gap from our conversation last time. Kyle, what, do you, what did you say that gap was and why, why we needed Charlotte in on this? So I think the last time we spoke, we talked a lot about why the communication piece was important and how meeting the needs of our staff and our teams, not just our staff, I guess, is really, really important. And we probably left out one of the most important bits was connection. And even if we go to Maslow's hierarchy of need, one of the most important parts of that is our desire for connection with the people around us. And you know, if we're not communicating well, all we're doing is putting up barriers around that. So I think this is where Charlotte probably helps us a lot, where we talk a little deeper about creating connection in our communication, not just words. Love it. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Over to you, Charlotte. I think she got a bit of a shiver then. I, I think that looked a bit like, oh, there's goosebumps from that one. Well, it's really exciting for me when people get um, involved in communication like this, because for most people, they do just think about when you're told to communicate better or things like that, that you need to just talk more. And that's not necessarily what you need to be doing. In fact, one of the big things that you can do to improve communication straight up and create that connection is actually to listen more. And that's one of the things that we did cover off when we were talking to Kyle's team, but we framed it a little bit more in the sense of vulnerability and things like that. So that when you're in a workplace, you feel safe to share these things within your colleagues or with your managers so that if you're not performing at your best, you can either explain to the depth that you're comfortable with and not feel like you're going to be attacked when you do so. And that creates that connection rather than just talking to people and giving orders. And it creates a deeper sense of understanding within a team as well. 
Mm. Definitely. Definitely. I really like that bit about listening more to communicate better. Now, Jade had Oscar talking a lot about listening more and listening and how you listen to help in that communication. So maybe, maybe that's a really good spot to start is um, listening a little bit better. Yeah, so one of the interesting things about listening is most people, when they communicate, they listen just so that they can respond. They don't actually listen to what the other person is saying. So they're thinking about how what the other person is saying relates to them rather than creating a connection with the other person and actually being concerned for the other person's welfare or why they're saying what they're saying. So when you listen more carefully and you want to use listening as a form of connecting with someone rather than just as a transactional experience of, okay, I'm listening because they're talking kind of situation. What you can do is actually you learn to ask more simple questions to get them to talk more. So if you're sitting in a conversation and you're saying the majority of the things in the conversation, you're actually not learning anything about the other person or about what they're telling you. So a really simple way that you can do this is literally ask them, oh, can you tell me more about that? So if someone's saying something really interesting, and you want to be engaging with them or connecting with them, can you tell me more? And people love talking about themselves. So if you're meeting someone for the first time that's, and that's the question you follow up their introduction with, they're going to feel instantly 100 times more attracted to you than someone who's gone back and been like, okay, cool, but this is about me now. I like that line too because Brene Brown talks about when you feel that anger rising, the best question <laughs> you can ask is tell me more. Yeah. So whenever you're connecting to someone, especially if they're, if you're feeling vulnerable or the other person's feeling vulnerable, it usually means that you don't have enough information to fully adjust yourself to a situation or respond in a way that you feel comfortable with. So asking questions like that actually makes you, puts you in a more proactive, um, gosh, words, um, puts you in a more proactive space in the conversation. So you're not just sitting there waiting for the other person to tell you something that sets you off or makes you react. You're the one who's going, okay, I don't know enough information. I'm going to go find more. And I think that's another really important thing to realize is that just because you're sitting back and listening doesn't mean that you're being passive in your communication. What, you, what you're doing in that instance is looking for more information and being proactive in your search to know, okay, the way that I'm going to respond is going to be appropriate for the situation rather than just based on what I'm feeling. Mm, I like that. And, you know, I've got a lot of my students and, and probably a lot of my clients that would say, you know, they live in this very, um, this very red and powerful kind of environment. And so their work environment is all about that dominance, so to speak. And they're probably listening at the moment going, but if I just listen, I'm, I'm going to seem weak. How can I, I can't seem weak. I've got to fight back. I've got to be in there. So maybe, um, Maybe that's a good spot to talk about what's a good way to not seem weak as well as um, still actually ask questions. So a really interesting thing that's actually kind of counterintuitive to what a lot of people think is that when you're in a conversation and you're the person who's holding space or being silent, you actually have more power in that situation. So usually this is really, really obvious if someone's lied to you or you have a feeling that someone's lying to you or not telling you full truths. So if you ask them a question, they're giving you an answer and you just sit for 10 seconds in complete silence and they have told you a lie, they're going to keep talking and they're going to reveal that what they haven't told you. And it's instantaneous. And once again, even though you feel like because you're not talking, you're not the most powerful person in the room, being able to hold space and realize that silence is also a form of communication 
is really like empowering for you because you can choose when you want to speak, when it's appropriate for you to speak and when it's going to benefit you the most rather than just being reactive, which is how a lot of us are brought up thinking that as soon as a conversation changes pace, that we have to keep up. But if someone's starting to speed the conversation up and you're missing information or things aren't, I guess, progressing in the way that you would like, you can make the choice to be silent, slow it down, take a breath or ask questions so that you bring the other person back to your level rather than letting them rule the conversation. So if you're constantly trying to talk over the top of someone or match their level, you're actually letting them control the conversation whilst a silence is a really good way to bring that back into your playing field and make you the dominant person in the conversation that way. Mm, yeah, 100%. that's really interesting. Well, think about it in sales. How often do you hear if you give the price that he who speaks first loses? Yeah. <laughs> so when you're doing negotiations and things like that, they often say like once you've entered that, if you keep that talking going, it shows that you're anxious, not certain. You're trying to fill the space. You're you're trying to justify. Whereas if you can deliver with confidence and sit and wait, it's he who breaks first loses. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, 100%. That that silence piece follows on from what we spoke about two weeks ago where we speak nowhere near as fast as we're thinking. Yeah. So I think it's – it it changes depending on what you do, but it's like 125 words is average for what we speak at and about 900 words is what we think at depending on your ability. Some people who have a lot going on obviously even think faster than that. Some people will speak faster than that as well. Um, and it's really I interesting. I never talk fast though, Charlotte. You guys always catch everything I have to say. <laughs> That's the active listening part. Um, no. Now, but, we know that Charlotte has an eidetic mind, but I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean she can read minds. Yes, that's 100% <laughs> true. So that's definitely a <laughs> That definitely applies in this sort of situation where you've got, you know, 900 words going around in your head. And oftentimes I feel like people in management positions or those sorts of areas in work get frustrated when their um, employees don't understand them the first time around. And you've got to remember, you've got about nine times the amount of information that they've got, even in just yes. one minute of talking. And and even um, you've been processing it for you know, even if you think you just came up with this idea, your brain's been processing it for so long anyway. So the picture, you've already painted the picture, you've filled in the dots, you've got out the pastels, everything's done, and you just, you, you've spat out this tiny, tiny little piece of information and no one got it. We see yeah. this a lot. Um, for those that are, are familiar with, say, Roger James Hamilton's work on talent or wealth dynamics, the creators. So even just any, any um, personality profile that is that creator, big picture visionary, they ruminate on things. They've got ideas coming all of the time and they, they think it and then they forget that they haven't actually spoken it out yet. And they, they think so fast. So often those people think at about a thousand words per minute and so much faster. And because they know the detail and they get really frustrated with other personality types not thinking as fast as them, they say literally, I think, a third of the words that are necessary to co- clearly communicate because they think that everybody runs at the same pace. I say to Kyle, I think, think that people are like telepathically or just by standing next to you or by osmosis is, is absorbing all of the ideas. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, can you touch on that a little bit further, Charlotte? 
Well, what this kind of leads into for me is a lot of people think that when they're talking, it's the other person's job to understand what they're saying. So when you break it down into the basics of communication, it's actually on both parties, one, for the other person to be listening, but two, for the person who's sending the message, they need to realize that even though they're saying it one way, it's being interpreted a different way. And this can be due to so many factors. Like, I mean, if I'm touching wood, fingers crossed, not, not trying to jinx us at all, but say, for example, our podcast line got cut for a second, right? Someone wouldn't be able to understand what I'm saying. And it's nothing that's, that they haven't listened or that they haven't tried to understand. It's just that there is some um, external noise. And this external noise can also be your own thoughts or distractions or things that are happening in your life. They don't even need to be physical things that stop you from hearing. And so as a speaker or someone who's trying to communicate an idea to someone else, you need to remember this. Otherwise, when you get frustrated at their questions and you're like, why don't they understand? Remember that they, the words that you've used might not have gone across the same way to another person. So they're going to have all these other emotions and ideas and memories attached to all the different words that you're using. And so you might not always get the outcome that you're expecting from it. And them asking you questions and giving you feedback, whether it's actual verbal feedback being like, hey, I don't understand, or just a look of like, what are you talking about on their face? Both of those tell you, tell, would tell me that I need to try again and try a different way or reframe my message so that it comes across more clearly to that person. Or in return, ask them a question and being like, okay, so this is where we're starting and this is where we're finishing. Where in the middle did we get lost? Definitely. I had a really interesting conversation with Kiani, my daughter, my oldest daughter, one of her teachers on Tuesday night. And so her Japanese teacher, beautiful lady, and had Kiani two years ago. And Kiani absolutely loved Japanese, like really took to it and loves it. And I'm pretty sure at the moment she still really enjoys it. And her teacher went, I think I've lost her. I don't think she likes it wow why like what i'm seeing is she's interacting with a brother she's teaching her eight-year-old sister like oh i'm sure she's loving it and she said oh in class she's off talking to her friends and you know and i'm getting the oh bored kind of look and and she was really really worried so it's interesting how the message that she saw may not actually be what was going on yeah, and you have to also think that when you're communicating with someone, sometimes you might get people, for example, if someone's like an auditory learner or they learn in that particular way, they might be doing something with their hands while they're listening. But that's because they listen and that's how they absorb information. They can still be doing something while listening. Whilst as separately, you might have someone who you're talking to who's sitting there, oh, my God, I'm bored. And it's because they need to physically do something to understand it. And like they are actually bored because it's not, it doesn't matter how many times you repeat it to them, it's not going to stick. And that's like another form of communication as well is knowing what medium are you actually going to send your message through? So are, mm. are you going to talk to someone? Do, will they understand you best? Do you need to write them a note or an email or some sort of reminder? Or do you need to like take them by the hand, take them to the place and be like, okay, this thing on Tuesday, this thing goes outside and show them exactly where it needs to be moved to and walk them through the process of what you want them to do. I love it's, that. Um, that actually touches a bit on what Os Oscar was saying as well with young boys, like the difference between young boys and young girls and how if you want young boys to be able to hear you and pay attention, you've got to get them doing something and, and it's great to have them doing something with their hands to to sort of calm their, their I suppose, their lizard mind. And with little girls, like being able to sit and connect directly looking at them 
so that they can see you speaking. Um, and then I, so it must, I don't know the science behind that of where that forms us into to adults, but I think it's really important, especially when it comes to teams, and we'll touch a little bit more on post profile personality types as we talk about the communication a bit later in the conversation, but understanding, yeah, are, are they someone that needs to be physically touching something to be able to hear you? Because what I got out of what you were saying, Charlotte, the key thing is it's the responsibility of the speaker to make sure that the listener has been able to understand. It's not the responsibility of the listener to instantly understand it. You've got to speak so that they can hear you. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the really interesting thing about this is it changes culturally. So in societies like ours, we often think that, like a lot of the time we think that the other person should understand just by listening. But through like the way our, our culture is set up, that's not necessarily the case because we're very individualistic and we're more interested in what we're doing for ourselves than for other people. Whilst as you'll find that people from more, um, my words today is not, <laughs> not coming. But basically, it's Kyle. It's Kyle. It's Kyle. <laughs> Kyle has this magic thing of, I don't know why, because we talk to each other nonstop all the time, but whenever I have to go live with Kyle, it's like the words run away and I get this weird, I don't know what it is, this weird nervous thing that happens. It's the Kyle the Corrupter. That's fine, Charlotte. We, we understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, got the word. Collectivistic cultures. There we go. It's a difficult word. Um, more collectivistic cultures will have people who tend to listen more to their elders because there's this group mentality that you should be listening to people who are older than you, whilst as here we don't have that as strictly as much. So then more of the onus does go back to the speaker to really make sure that their message is coming through in a way that needs to be heard. Mm, I love that. Mm. Um, so when we're looking at, say, Teams, Charlotte, what's some of the things that we can do to be aware of what other team members' profiles are or listening styles are? What do you think we should be looking out for or doing to ensure that our message can get heard? So when you're thinking about different learning styles and how and what type of mediums you should be using, usually you'll notice a pattern in someone's behaviour because they know how they learn best as well. So if you have someone who is a serial like note writer, like they probably like getting things in writing because then it's already there in front of them. If you see someone who will just talk to you and they're like, yep, I've got it, and they don't ask you any questions, they probably really like listening, and that's their preferred way of doing it. Or you'll see someone who is constantly sitting there fidgeting. So even someone who has to do something physical to learn something, if they're forced into other types of learning behaviors, they can still do it, but they'll often have like be, like, be fiddling with a paperclip in their fingers or something like that as they're writing, and it's not a sign that they're bored or distracted. That's their way of concentrating is by using part of their brain to actually physically move something around. So those are really easy behaviors to pick up on in those sorts of ways, and people will usually subconsciously be aware of what works best for them, and then if you notice those patterns of behavior, that will tell you what you should be doing with those people. And it was the other something, time, um, sorry, it was yeah, something... I thought the school, my kid's school was doing really, really well. And I'm sure it's not just their school. Some of the kids, they've set up the room so that the kids can sit on the floor, they can stand up, they can sit at lower desks. And the kids that need to stand up and be active, you know, they're not, they're not sitting there tapping their foot on the floor and annoying everyone. They're standing up and they're, they're moving. But with the acceptance that that's okay for them to move means that that distraction's taken away from them. And so they're not just sitting there going, oh, 
hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. Oh, I've got to move. I've got to move. I need to tap the floor. I need to tap my pen. Click the pen. Click the pen. <laughs> so it, it, it was two things that the school did really, really well. It was the acceptance that kids need to move and some kids need to move to be able to do it, but also giving them that outlet where they can stand up and move their feet and move their legs and still be safe in that learning environment. Ah. Yeah. And even if you don't necessarily have the ways to do this in an office environment, maybe you don't have access to standing desks or things like that, just letting people know that if they need to take a lap around the building, sometimes that is enough. And some people prefer to be moving while they're thinking. So if they're stuck on something, then being able to take a lap or move spaces is enough of a change for them to like break the pattern of them be feeling stuck and get back into the work when they come back, even though they might have taken five minutes to take a walk. They're going to be more productive when they come back than if they sat there for five minutes doing nothing anyway. Mm, yeah. Now, we've, we've spoken and we've said that it's learning styles, but we probably should quantify that that's also communication styles. Yeah. So part of the way that you that you can communicate, it helps when you're the person sending the message, basically. So when you're the person sending the message, knowing how someone's gonna receive your communication or how they will best receive your form of communication is the way that you can apply that to a communication setting. But there's also the different ways in which people will send messages. So when they are the person speaking, there's different ways that they will talk. And um, Jade, I know that you use um, Talent Wealth Dynamics for this one, but um, we also talk about DISC sometimes as well. So you're going to have those people who are really direct, really sharp and more dominant in conversations. And that's just their preferred style of speaking. And as the person who's receiving that information, sometimes you can feel attacked by these sorts of communicators, but they don't usually mean anything malicious by it. That's just the way of getting things done. And it's usually very methodical and kind of just their preferred style because they don't see the, like, they don't see pleasantries is necessary to get their message across. Whilst then you'll have on the opposite side, the kind of, you know, steadiness supporter type roles who will be on and on about how is your weekend? How are you doing? And if you get a dominant person talking to a steadiness person, they're probably going to look at each other and be like, why are you like this? Um, well, that's, that comes across in, in verbal communication as well as written. I'm, I'm not sure if we've spoken about this on the podcast before, but there was an example I have with my sister who is definitely more on the steadiness side. And when I write, I, I'm an equal DI when it comes to the disc profiling. And I'm a, in Wealth Dynamics, Talent Dynamics, I'm a, a star creator. So I, when I write though, I write really direct and I'm usually just trying to be efficient and I'm dyslexic. So like, right, I just, as minimal amount of words as possible when I'm texting, typing or anything that's, that's how I communicate. But what that was happening was she was receiving that as, why are you being such a rude bitch? You didn't even <laughs> ask how my day was. Like, I'm like, you asked me a question. I'm running between meetings. I answered the question. How am I in trouble? It's like, well, what did I do wrong? Why are you being a bitch? And I'm like, what do you mean, bitch? Like, but now that we understand that, and I just explained to her, it's hard for me to type because trying to get the words right, it's just fucking annoying because sometimes you just can't guess how I'm trying to spell. <laughs> and if I'm going fast, I just think you don't want to have to read a whole wall of text. And she's like, no, like I want the story, the la la la. So being able to have those conversations about how you're receiving it and how you felt, and Kyle, this might be the segue to the story I'm telling myself, right? It's, it's so important that we understand, like not just in our 
family lives and, and friend life, but it, at work, that if people are emailing like that, and I know we had a situation with one of your teammates, teammates um, or team members, Kyle, someone wrote in really high D all of the time in their email communication and other people just thought they were being an absolute dick. And it was yeah. just that they get shit done and they just don't see why you should have the fluff where other people that are the supporters, they, they just literally feel offended. Yep. Can you touch maybe yep. a little bit more on that, Charlotte? About the ways that people receive communication? Yeah, and, and how we can, even in written communication, how you can kind of guess how someone is. Yeah. So, I mean, for, I guess, for the four quadrants of DISC, you've got, yeah, um, your high Ds, which we're talking about really direct communication, um, your eyes, which are your influencers in a way, like they have a natural ability to lead and talk to people in a way that they understand, but they're not necessarily tied into the emotional aspects of it. They're more really good for getting ideas out there. And then you've got your C, your compliance, people who like someone else leading the conversation. They're very happy to sit back and listen to someone else, give them the details and then work from there as well. So there are people who do like saying yes to things or being in conversations where they can sit back and just be on the receiving end more than actually taking control and grabbing hold of the conversation. And then as we talked about, you have your steadiness people who are really emotionally driven in the way that they communicate as in they want to know about the other person. They want to be able to connect emotionally more than I guess on a task-based approach to communication right. and you have to think that when you're talking to each of these different people that you would slightly need to adjust your communication to them so i know sometimes when i am needing to talk to jade and it is urgent i will <laughs> send really short one sentence or a couple of word responses uh, so that i don't overwhelm jade with like a, hey i just got up this is how my day is going like i'm not gonna do that but if i'm sending someone an, a morning message to let them know i'm up i'm ready to work i'm gonna say hey good morning how how's your day going or something like that so that i'm kind of like easing in to see how their mood is one because people's communication styles definitely do change depending on their mood i know for myself that when i do a disc i'm actually a ds or sd so i'm a conflictor so i go from being thanks jade um, i go from being really emotional emotionally driven like wanting to connect with people to like okay time to work get your shit done <laughs> <laughs> and that can I, um, conflict a profile sorry Kyle, you run with it but conflictors no, really are that conflicting <laughs> I, I was just gonna say you know you and i share a k our our pa and um i i feel like when I communicate with Kay, it's exactly that. It's a, it's a good morning. How are you? You know, how was the night and all that sort of stuff. And I feel like if I said that to Jade in the morning, it would be fuck off. <laughs> Why are you annoying me? Ow. Oh, ow. <laughs> so our good mornings are just blank. They're just blank. <laughs> Uh, Kay's listening uh, and I, we always start our mornings with good morning and I do like Absolutely. to, when handling, when working with the team, I do like to use my pleasantries and let them know that I, uh, that I love them and I care about them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's... Um, often it's not my first. It's just because it's not the way that I communicate and the way that I want to, want to hear things doesn't mean that it's not important to me that people hear me the way I want them to be heard. And, you know, in, Kay is a fantastic example where, you know, it is every, every morning it's good morning and, and there's a, 
um, I have to consciously make sure that I do put that that effort into a, a warm, longish good morning because that's how Kay wants to hear it. That's that's what she she needs in the morning. Um, whereas I know if I've got to get a message to you in the morning, Jade, the message just has to be the message because we're already in for the day. It's go time. Like we we can drink beer on Friday. Hours hours already. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I think that's, a perfect... um, it's a respect of, of each other and, and understanding each other well enough to communicate the right way. Yeah. I think a perfect example is yesterday morning to Charlotte. I think I sent her a message at her time, probably 5, 5.30 in the morning. I'm like, what the fuck? Facebook's charging me again. How'd the ads get turned back on? And then like two minutes later, I'm like, yes, good morning. <laughs> I think I might have done exactly the same thing to Charlotte on the same day. Oh, really? Friggin' yep. Facebook. Um, but I know. I know the thing for me though is I'm. I am super bubbly, and I look. I'll allow Charlotte to correct me if I'm off the chart with my own self. But I think if if, if I'm voice memoing, I'm much different because I flip back over to my blaze personality because I'm not caught up in my listexic shit or just like not wanting to go through the motion of typing. If I'm on the voice and I'm like, hey, good morning. How are you? How's your night? Oh, it's a great day. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah. And by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, so a really that a interesting. That is a fair assumption. And obviously changing the way that you communicate to a medium that you're more comfortable with will make your communication feel flow a little bit better and make you a bit more comfortable. It's the same as there's going to be heaps of people who I know who would hate doing a live like this because they don't like talking in front of groups. But if you got them to write the speech for someone else, they would nail it. Like that would 100% be their jam. And so the way that you feel comfortable communicating does affect, you know, how you'll be talking to people. And the other thing that you need to think about is that, as Kyle was saying, that even though you might not prefer communicating in that style, if you know that you're talking to someone who does need either you to lead the conversation or they want you or they like need someone who can influence them a bit more like you need to kind of step into those different roles so that you can get your message across, across most clearly and that's the interesting thing about communication is a lot of the time people think that there's like special words or special phrases that you can use in any situation but that's not necessarily true because it completely depends on one the message you're sending and two who who you're trying to send that message to yeah, yeah absolutely so Jade, I reckon you need to bring that comment back up. Um, was it was it all? I don't know if I'm, uh, I'm saying that right. No, that was me. That was me not um, me not pacing correctly. It's Paul. Ah. I don't know why the P, the P keeps cutting off. I don't Paul. know why it's doing that. Ah, cool. So I think that's a really interesting one um, about communicating, particularly with an audience, about actually having some empathy with them, and something mm. that I got taught to do whenever I'm presenting to a group was to, and I think this made, it may have actually come from Pete Lakovich, um, oh. was to go and, and stand in the room for half an hour or an hour before and just feel the vibe, feel what's going on. And I, I remember listening to him talk about that and going, but I know what I want to say. I already have that plan. I know what I'm going to say. Why, what? And after trying it a few times, I know that, I've changed what I'm going to talk about 180 degrees just because I've stood in the room and, and particularly the last time that I did it, it was just before a break 
and everyone walked out of the room past me. So I had a chance to really just connect with everyone and say a hello to just about everyone in the room and just get that vibe about what was going on as they were leaving so that they came back to my presentation next. And I changed completely just based on the vibe that I got out of the room. Well, I think Charlotte really touched on that when she presented to your team, Kyle, because she was talking about um, the, the importance of that and how she was and how you can curate how you speak based on being able to read the people and build the connection and by similarities or jokes. And I'll let you elaborate more on that, Charlotte. But you mentioned that it was really beneficial for you that you got to spend 24 hours watching them interact and be around them the day before before you had to go into your presentation. So can you just touch a bit more on, on that, Charlotte? Yeah, so what I was talking about to them, I remember I remember this conversation coming up when I was presenting to them, and it's about forming relationships. So whether we like to admit it or not, there's actually a pattern that most people follow when they form relationships. And some steps only apply to intimate partners, and that's okay, we don't need to think about those when thinking about your team. Um, but especially if you work in training or things like that, you know, when you first form a relationship with someone, when you're initiating that relationship, you, you know, you walk up, you say, hi, my name is, and you introduce yourself or you might ask for their name. And then from there, you kind of go into an experimenting phase. Oh, does this person like this? Hey, what do you think about this? What's the weather like? And you kind of move through those stages. And then the next stage that is kind of a big jump, because a lot of people get stuck at this experimenting phase is that you go into integrating and integrating is where you actually start picking up the characteristics of the other person. So it's a really good way to build rapport really quickly with people is if you notice someone has a particular mannerism, a particular I'm just, mannerism. I'm just blaming Kyle, the corrupter for the beer. Yeah. We just picked this up from have, Kyle. <laughs> if you notice people have a particular mannerism or inside joke or something like that, that they constantly talk about, as long as it's something relevant that's happened recently or that you were there to witness, obviously it's a bit weird if you jump in on an inside joke that you weren't there for or that they haven't repeated over and over again to the point where you now understand it. Like if you notice, yeah, those mannerisms, behaviors, choice words that they keep using and things like that, and you start using that language or you start kind of slipping those mannerisms or slang words into what you're doing, they will actually feel closer to you because you've kind of overstepped the stage of experimenting into integrating. Now you want you don't want to do this within the first five minutes of meeting someone because that kind of looks it'll feel unnatural creepy. or a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah. It'll feel a little bit creepy, like you've done the, the like instant mirroring or something. Yeah, it's like well, that's the thing that a lot of people get told when they go on dates is that you should mirror people and you should copy their actions. But if you actually look at two people who are standing side by side who are walking together and you can tell that those people are really really close, you can notice that the mirroring doesn't happen like it's not like instantaneous it's probably across like a 10 minute span of time where someone will be sitting cross-legged and then eventually the other person will start sitting cross-legged or they'll lean to the same side of the table or things like that and it's not that's not a conscious thing that's why it takes time to happen is because they'll suddenly if they're friends or things like that their instinct is just to move closer to that person so they'll kind of lean in or do those sorts of things naturally anyway and when you try to mimic that purposefully it comes across a little bit jarring to a lot of people because they realize it's not natural and the same thing happens here it's more if you clue into something and maybe like you're spending a couple of hours with these people or if they're on your team you see them every day maybe if you've noticed this pattern of behavior for like a week maybe that's when you start 
slipping those words in or doing those things. And maybe the first time you use it, you might get it wrong, but then it gives you an option, like an opportunity for connection where they can explain to you what, what it's about or what it means or why they say that thing. Mm. Yeah. I think that's like, when you're talking about team and stuff, it's how they like to describe things. If they're a blaze, like a high eye sort of person, they might use excitable words like awesome or super. That's amazing. And where a, a more steady person or a, a someone on the seaside, they might be a little bit more calm about how they describe something. So it's kind of using their languaging when, when talking about something. So if you find that someone uses the word amazing or awesome, then just using those words, cause that's going to, they're, they're going to hear that and it's going to click for them faster than say using your version of that word. Um, I'm reminded of, like coming from a recruitment background, the, I don't, I couldn't even imagine how many interviews I did over the 13 years, right? But you could, and and mainly salespeople, and you could always tell someone who read the NLP handbook or the NLP for dummies, because they'd come into the interview and they'd instantly start trying to mirror you. If you had your arms folded, they just fold their arms. If you leaned in, and then I used to do it as a game. I was like, let me see what I can make this. Let me see what I can make this idiot do. Like, I start playing with my earrings, and like they they're a boy, and they start playing on the earlobes, and it's like, oh, that's so cringe. It's like, okay, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so, oh, no. as someone who's like studied into like body language and things like that, that amuses me so much because usually touching like your ears or your face is like a sign of like arousal or attraction. So having a job interviewee <laughs> coming in doing this would look a little bit odd. <laughs> it's great and they don't because they they're just trying so hard and you're like oh it's like what else can i make them <laughs> that's harsh that's very harsh okay i shouldn't admit that that's bad um i do remember but once again it's noticeable it's it's yeah. that thing that's noticeable it's not natural hmm. yeah it's crazy i do remember when i was um studying for some of my training qualifications and i'm, I'm missing a step but we talked about storming, norming, something else. Performing. Performing, that's the one. Yeah. Adjourning and then mourning. And yeah. it's, a, it's a really interesting way to think about um, bringing a group together where, you know, initially you're all just rubbing against each other trying to find this place. And then, as you said, you move into the norming part where everyone starts to get along and, and it starts to work okay. And then doing the things that you should be doing. Yeah, and I think it, it talks kind of really interestingly because you can fit, I guess that's kind of like a training or performance model or team building model, right? So you can actually, they've kind of almost taken the relationship forming models and simplified it down because I didn't go through this part with your team, how, but there is like a de-escalation or like a parting ways stepping down from a relationship that happens as well. Yeah. Um, and obviously, and it's super important too. Oh, Share that with the Charlotte. <laughs> Um, well, a lot of people will notice these things happening because this is usually when like personal connections break apart and this probably won't happen too much with teams unless you no start noticing that your team's being a bit dysfunctional. Um, so in teams that are just working together for a short amount of time and then they part ways, they won't, they might view this personal relationship outside of work and then this stage wouldn't happen. But you'll start noticing things like rather than integrating, people start using language that separates themselves. So rather than using we terms to talk about the group, like we think this or we want to do this, they'll start using you and I. So you versus, or you versus me, this kind of versus language, or they'll purposefully stop 
laughing at inside jokes, they'll stop responding to names or things like that that other people have given them. And this is kind of where that distancing approach starts. And obviously different things happen where people will then start avoiding each other and things like that, or they won't be able to work in the same space, or they'll purposely plan their schedules so that they're not interacting with each other. And some of this is done subconsciously, where they'll just notice someone else has a pattern of like, hey, maybe they go to lunch at, you know, one every day. So I'll go to lunch at 12 so that we don't go to lunch at the same time. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so for us, we have, we have groups of students that might come together for quite a significant amount of time. So over over the course of six months, they might spend nearly 20 days together. And that's quite a lot of time in, in, a, in a group where they're, they're a group. And you do notice towards the end of it, a change in the dynamics where they are getting towards that, we're going to break up stage. Like next week, this is the last week. Next week, we don't come back to this. How do we, how do, we deal with this? <laughs> And that can be a bit yeah. of a um, protection mechanism too, can't it? Like if they know that they're separating, it, it kind of goes into, oh, I need to, I need to protect myself from this situation, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna just start physically dis- distancing. Yeah, yeah, and look, I would say that probably none of our students have ever noticed it in themselves that they're going through a breakup, but it, mm. it does happen, and you do see, as you say, the language changes and the interaction changes a little bit where they're wanting to sort of separate and distance a little bit. As you say, just a, um, that's a protection thing. And, you know, if, if you thought about it logically, it's not really a breakup. Like our lives aren't changing next week. <laughs> yeah. But it's just a way that humans kind of end relationships with each other. And especially because there's someone else kind of facilitating that as well. You're not going to really hit those like stagnating or circumscribing situations where people start being like, you can't say my name and things like that, which gets more in towards like what personal relationships, what happens in personal relationships, because they've been given an end date. They know when it's going to end. And there's someone else there to actually perform that cutoff for them where they don't have to talk to the other person and be like, I don't want to see you anymore in whatever realm that that exists in because it doesn't just happen in romantic relationships. It also happens with friends or family and things like that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Facebook doesn't fill the whole gap. (laughs) I think this is a good way to segue into um, say some conflict resolution, Charlotte, because if you do see someone starting to pull away or there's a hint of conflict resolution that needs to be happening, I think you would, did you just run a, a uh, group call? around this did you were you just coaching around this topic it's next week that i'll be coaching oh next this week topic. oh yeah. don't give away too much then i know, I know. Ah. <laughs> no it's all good um because i think the the important thing that i like to think about with conflict resolution is there's nothing actually wrong with conflict or disagreeing with someone um and what i did run this week that's already been is teaching people how to argue and why people argue in certain ways. So we haven't quite gotten to the resolving of the conflict, but how you can do it constructively is also super important. But the first thing that you need to think about when you're going into conflict with someone is how strongly they're fighting for something usually depends on how invested they are in that end result. So if someone doesn't really care about the end result, say you've gone to them and they might just disagree with you and they're just like, okay, well, this is, I think this is a silly way to do it, but you do it your way anyway. Like they're kind of just like, eh, whatever. And they're pretty much conflict avoidant. They just, they don't, they don't really want to get into it. They're just kind of like, okay, this is my passing thought, but I'm not going to share it. 
And then you've got people who are accommodating, which looks very similar, where they will say, hey, I don't agree with you. How about we do this? And they get a no. And they'll be like, okay, well, you do, you do it your way and we'll see what happens. So those two are kind of on the bottom end. They don't really care too much. They're kind of like, yeah, yeah, I can work with this. I can live with this. Then you've got on the other side, you've got people who are competing. So people who are competing, they only want their, their outcome. They really care about what's going on. So it might be because it's been their idea. Like this is their, their like little nest egg thing that they've grown and they've seen it flourish and now they want to see it to the end. But they've hit like a roadblock or they've asked for help on something, but they won't actually listen to other people's ideas. And it's usually because they're really emotionally invested in it and they're like, this is my thing. I want it done my way and I don't want to listen to anyone else. And sometimes it can be really hard to get through to these people because they've decided that this is their approach. So if, if someone who's competing comes up who's, with someone who's avoiding, there isn't really going to be conflict because one of them's just going to concede. But if you get two people who are competing who both have, or have what they think is a really, really good idea, they might actually need someone to come in as a mediator to help them reach a resolution rather than just letting them bat, butt heads for the whole time. And then you've got kind of your two in-between points. So you've got compromising, which is actually a lose-lose situation. So a lot of people think compromise is the best way to solve a conflict. And for some people, it's actually probably the most likely option to happen just because we're humans, we have egos, we feel a lot of pride. So we would rather that, the, that we both lose and that we kind of get what we want. And so that's kind of your compromising situation where they both care a lot, but not enough to actually cause a, like, cause a really big issue over it. And then you have your complete middle ground, which is collaborating, where two people with equal interest come into it. They both are willing to give a little bit to get what they want. And they're also willing to give a little bit to help the other person get what they want. So this is kind of your win-win situation where both people put all their effort in together to get help both parties get what they want. And a hunt, like if you're on completely opposite sides of the fence, it probably won't be possible. But if two people are coming in and they've kind of got similar ideas, but there's maybe a little bit hazy on the details, or there's a couple of things that this person wants to ask this person, this one person wants to ask this person, okay, well, maybe we ask both people and see who wants to do it and those sorts of things like that. Yeah. Would you suggest in these sorts of situations, though, Charlotte, if it was in a team environment, say working on a project, that it is always best to say have a moderator that doesn't have a vested interest in it or not too emotionally attached to, to be able to facilitate the conversation? And what, what came to mind there is if we can get realignment before the conversation to the actual purpose. So if we got everyone recommitted to, okay, why do we exist? What's our mission? Where, like, what's our five-year obsession? Where are we going to? Let's just get back into the intention that like we're here to make the boat go faster towards this objective and then to to play that neutral, to play Switzerland, uh, <laughs> to facilitate that conversation. Do you think that that would be the most beneficial way to get a result? I mean, if you've already got two team members who are working together in either a compromising or collaborating sort of situation where they're pretty easy in the middle ground, you probably don't need to bring a moderator or a mediator in because they're going to be able to solve the problem by themselves. They just need to have a chat about it. Whilst as if you've got people in there who are competing and they're really causing a rub, that's when you probably want to get a mediator in there. And yeah, you do want to tie it back to a results-oriented goal because there's two types of conflict that we can enter into. We can either be like arguing about the end goal like how do we get from a to b and that's fine because that's constructive that's something that you can work with and yes it might some people might get a bit huffy for like a, for a day or something but in the long run they'll probably turn it around and come back and be able to work on it fine 
However, if you've got two people who are competing and for some reason it's escalated past actually just talking about the end result and they're starting to call each other names or things like that, that's really when you need to bring someone in between the two because it's, it's escalated to an ego conflict. So they no, long, they no longer care about the end result and that's when you need to bring someone in to ground them both and let them know that, hey, what you're actually arguing about or you saying to someone you never do this or you always do this, two really good words to avoid in conflicts is never and always. Um, but if it's like calling each other names and doing stuff like that, that's when the third person needs to come in and be like, hey, so you're actually arguing over this thing. Can we bring our attention back to this? And really just keep pulling them back to that main focus. And as you, as I know that you guys have been talking about that with your five-year obsession and your goals and your virtues and things like that, having staff who are aligned to those will mean that this sort of ego conflict is avoided much more easily because they are actually invested in the end result. They don't really care about who's doing what. It's none of that, oh, I want to take on this responsibility because it's my job or it's my role or you're beneath me or this sort of stuff that can happen in workplaces sometimes. So... Once again, as you guys have already talked about, hiring the right people to fulfill those goals will help you avoid these conflicts. But once again, if you've got people in those kind of medium levels, those conflicts can actually be really constructive and help both people learn. It's only when it really gets to those competing levels where people are butting heads that you need to bring a third person in to ground them. Well, I, think I really also, like that. Sorry. So you go, Carl. <laughs> the, the joys of being on technology and separated how it interrupts your communication pattern a little bit the noise. <laughs> so i was just going to say ray dalio talks about this about encouraging people to um, argue and conflict and encouraging it because that's where the best innovation comes from mm. Yeah, and I think teaching people to argue properly before <laughs> before you just let them at each other is a really, really good skill. So r running through that, like you can't just call people names like doing, I was talking, this is what I was talking about is ad hominem attacks on someone rather than their argument. So basically calling people names or telling them that they're stupid or this, that or whatever um, isn't going to help you in an argument that doesn't actually provide any logic or any extra thought to the process it's just you're just up, upset that someone might have had a better idea than you um, so teaching people that there's certain ways that you can argue but if you are using one of these sorts of ways of arguing you're not actually being constructive you actually might be hindering progress if you're doing that so maybe a better term is to encourage them to debate rather than to argue because if we think about like back in in school when we when we had uh, the mock trial and debating like choosing the language and it's and looking at the merit of the argument rather than yeah. the human behind the argument uh, and humanizing it is, is more the way forward. I was just, and this kind of dovetails into what I was thinking. I often think that having, if you know you've got a compromiser on your team, being there to support them, because sometimes the compromiser has the better idea for the innovation. And especially if they're an introvert, they may shy away and you may not get the juiciness and you may not actually get a better result because they've been too timid to fight or, or they've just, their natural behavior is to compromise. So I think when building your team culture and building in that ability to debate ideas, especially if you're looking to innovate, and this probably circles back through to vulnerability as well, um, because if you don't allow the team to have the space to be vulnerable and to share their ideas and to come at it from that way, you're not going to get the creativity because people are going to be too, too scared to, to voice it. And, and if they are attacked or someone uses those, um, I don't say derogatory, but they're using those terms that are, uh, around who they are as a person 
and making them feel stupid, like you're stupid for that idea rather than that idea doesn't actually, it, like we, we look at it and it doesn't actually fit, it, it compresses the, the team's ability to create and to, to really push those boundaries for innovation. Yeah, and it's really interesting when you look at group dyna- dynamics as well. So something I was talking about was um, biases. So when we so we have logical fallacies, which is other, usually mistakes we make in making our argument, but we also have biases in the way we interpret arguments. And so there's a really interesting thing when you're talking about someone who's really quiet or introverted who has a really good idea. So there's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, and it basically means that people who know a lot um, or who are experts in the field are less confident in what they know than people who know very little in that field. So basically, the least knowledgeable voice is usually the loudest because they're the most confident in what they know. And you'll often notice this as well in like really high-level arguments or debates. People who are experts in fields will kind of seem to sit on the fence. And it's usually because they can see both sides of the argument. They've explored both sides of the argument. And they'll be like, well, there's good parts over here and there's good parts over here. And people often won't want to go with their idea because it's not as persuasive as someone standing up and being like, well, I think this is right, you know? So encouraging those quieter people or people who do have those expertise to speak up is often really a really good way to push innovation as well. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, and that's interesting. That's, again, understanding um, e- where ego comes into play and significance uh, because we often see someone wanting to argue their point because they feel if they are not seen as the most intelligent or the most knowledgeable in a situation, then that might mean something about them. I know we had that conversation um, when you come to speak, Charlotte. Is there any, any other um, anything else you want to add uh, on the side of the ego and how that that plays and what we should be, how we can recognise that within a team, or Kyle, um, how we can recognise that within team dynamics. There's a lot of things running through my head right now, but you go. <laughs> it's probably a good one to, to dive a bit deeper when you were talking about conflict and the need for a mediator. And maybe to dissect a little bit, I know in some of our customers in this real power-hungry ego, sorry, everyone listening, ego-fed kind of work environment, um, and look, you know, I, I say ego fed and I hope that doesn't really offend everyone, but really, you know, if, if, if we look around, there's all these egos playing out and recognizing where the conflict is as a mediator, how do you break apart the ego fed from the technical, you know, the stuff that matters from the ego and what are some of maybe those skills that you can use or ideas, techniques to try and break the ego away, you know, where, we're fighting for the sake of fighting. Let's stop this. Let's. So usually the best thing a mediator can do is actually listen to both sides, have them say it out in front of each other so that they can hear the argument and then actually simplify it down to what the actual problem is. So usually people get so caught up in their egos and doing what they're trying and what they think is right and what the story that they're telling themselves in their head that they actually don't know what the other person's fighting for anymore. They don't know what the argument's over anymore. So usually if you can get both people to explain their side in front of each other, not at each other, like, so they're both talking to you and you're getting them to explain. And then you take it and you say, okay, so this is what I've heard. And you lay down the baseline of the problem. And usually that in itself helps diffuse the situation because people will suddenly go, oh, wait, wait, that guy isn't fighting over because he thinks I'm stupid. Like, or this person isn't 
isn't saying this. They they just they just want they just want us to fix this thing. Like it suddenly brings it down a notch because someone else has said what the actual problem is. And the things that you need to keep in mind as a mediator, obviously, is try not to take sides. Even if you agree with one person more than the other, try not to take sides in terms of like, well, yeah, you shouldn't have said that. If, if you say that as a mediator, you've kind of already lost your middle ground part and you're not doing a very effective job. So when, when you are mediating and you're trying to bring in those skills, one thing that you want to do is reserve judgment. So try and keep all of your body language really neutral as well, which can be difficult to do if you've never done it before. Um, write things down. So that if someone then later tries to backtrack and like, because some people do that to protect their egos as well. If they're caught out or they suddenly feel like they've made a fool of themselves, they'll backtrack and you can be like, no, well, this is where we started from. Are you changing? Like, you know, you can ask them, are you changing your opinion? Is it okay? Like, and you can ask them those questions. It's, it's very similar to like when you're trying to get someone to explain a situation better for you. So when, when if you're in a working thing and you don't quite understand something, as a, as a mediator, that's what you're trying to understand as well. You're trying to into the situation as if you know nothing as if you've got no background experience. And ideally the best mediators don't have much more than these two people are fighting over this. That's usually all they're given. Yeah, and I think that's really important in a, in a team environment that you are bringing someone in from the same team, that you are trying to, to bring in a, a neutral party that, like I said, it doesn't have a vested interest in the outcome because if they are on the same team, they still have a vested interest in the outcome. And someone may have a perception that they like them better than me or they've got a relationship outside of this room and all these layers can be popped on top. So you do, and this, I've seen this um, happen in um, situations where I've actually been brought in previously to a client's business to be the mediator. So to sit in on a, on a team um, discussion and to sit in actually on HR stuff as well, where it is a neutral party that's not got a vested interest just because they need that um, that real <laughs> non-bias, no one can say anything about this um, situation. Sorry, Kyle. I was just going to zero in on something there that, and and it's it's going to be a technique thing as well. Is even as the mediator though, it's okay to say, or maybe not okay to say, but it's okay to break apart the things that shouldn't be said. So if someone is being um, or if, if they're being derogatory, mm. you've still got to maintain the rules of engagement, so to speak, and make sure that that's not happening. So it, it's still okay to say, hey, that's you shouldn't have said that. But maybe um, if you've got a very, a very high D person, maybe what that, that comment needs to be is, how would you expect someone to react to that comment? Mm. Yeah. And placing them in the other person's shoes is a really good um, way to do it as well. Because oftentimes what can happen during conflict, especially at the moment when so many people are um, distanced from each other, what ends up happening is we create empathy gaps. So this is something that I was that I explored a bit um, whilst I was studying communication as well, which is that when we're chatting to people, this often happens when people are talking by text or email or things like that, you get someone who's just being really rude for no reason like not even like a high D person anymore. Like they're just being straight out rude. Um, and it's because they can't actually see how the other person's feeling. They don't get any of that feedback that you get in face to face or via video chat or things like that. They can't hear people's voices. They can't see, like they can't actually see if that someone's read something and like flinched backwards or like done those sorts of things to realize that they're actually, that they're hurting, that the words are hurting them. And often asking them like, how would you react if someone said that to you? 
sometimes once again people's egos will get in the way and they'll be like oh I would have been fine I've got tough skin or this that or whatever yeah they'll do that as well but trying to get them to experience empathy and push for empathy is a really good way to get people to connect again and the other thing you've got to remember as a mediator and this particular and if you are in a an environment that you feel is quite hostile to being mediated this might need to happen more than once because people if they're going to make a change in the way they communicate and how in their behavior and how they resolve conflict and things like that they actually need to be willing to make that change so you might go in and mediate a situation that might not resolve or there will be one party who's willing to change what they're doing and the other won't and sometimes if you're in a work situation and there's one party who just won't change no matter what you do or say to them um obviously not threatening them or things like that but just doing mediating and trying to solve this situation between them if there's one party that just won't change or they don't see why they should change then they might not be a good fit for the team in the long run yeah 100 percent. i'm i'm having a pretty good laugh because um hopefully brad brad's watching at the moment but he's tagged me in a uh, or he sent some really interesting uh i guess they're memes you know and and how we write to each other so you know things like yeah you know, kind regards at the bottom of your email actually means fuck you <laughs> <laughs> you know and thanks in advance you know I, i'm just telling you you're going to do it i'm not asking you i'm telling you <laughs> yeah, I'm, expecting you. So I'm, I'm quite enjoying you know there's, there's quite a um you know a good good list of them here and thank you brad it was um it was very topical <laughs> for this conversation you know um yeah i see your point you know, yes, um, you can express your opinion, but I don't give a fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to pop these onto the postcard. Can you send them through I, for the team? I to... think so. Um, it's um, he's done well. He, he they're very, very definitely worth um, definitely worth it. I think the 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 key one there. I I do like this one, um, and maybe I use it every now and again. Yeah, the moving forward. Oh. Stop wasting my fucking time. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that was an ouch. Oh, moving forward. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you, Brad. You did well, mate. Um, I'm just going to drop back into what you were saying there, Charlotte, about um, sometimes you might find yourself in a situation, you might have someone that's great at their job, but if they're causing communication issues and they're not aligned to the overall values of, of the company, you've got to kind of look at, you know, where's the cancer causing issues? And if you let it spread, what's going to happen? And how does it affect the performance of other people? Because often we think, oh, no, well, they're a high performer and, you know, it's a bit of a rub, but they, you don't actually know how much damage that's doing to the performance of every person that they interact with just by the way that they're communicating with them. And Kyle and I had this discussion about where's the line where you are cut off the limb to, to save the body. Um, and we see a lot with salespeople that we keep high performers and often they don't communicate very well with the rest of the team, sometimes through ego, sometimes just because of their personality types. But if they're not willing to do the work on themselves and to, to establish a fair communication style, then you've got to cut your losses because really you're like, Oh yeah, well they bring the dollars, but actually the productivity of the rest of the team might plummet for a whole day because of an interaction they had in the morning. And I don't think people realize, I think a lot of people building their teams, especially if they're not in there all the time, do not realize the impact of how one simple communication could 
be detrimental to the productivity of that person for the rest of the day. Because if, if they then start feeling sad, angry, disempowered, questioning themselves, like they, they might get stuck to procrastination. They may stop coming up with ideas. They might just shrink into a hole. Sometimes they just end up crying in the corner. That's, that's not going to help the rest of the business. Right. Yeah. And it, it's really interesting because especially if this kind of negative communication patterns continue towards specific people, one, they might lose trust that they're able to share things or connect with people in the team. They might decide that they're not going to talk about their outside life. They might keep it very work focused, but because they're doing that, they're actually going to lose interest in their job as well because they're not feeling connected to the business anymore. They're not feeling connected to their teammates or their colleagues. And there's really nothing left in the business for them. So you might end up losing another team member just because this one person is unable to communicate properly with the team. And you'll notice this a lot, especially if someone who's in management or something like that has a, has a bad communication style or they might be, you know, have some traits towards narcissistic personalities and things like that. And you'll notice that their entire teams just leave. And it's usually quite close together that they'll lose three or four staff in the span of like a month because one domino falls and the rest of them start to follow. And unfortunately, sometimes what I've seen with the narcissists that are in a leadership role, they can find every excuse of why those people had to go or they make, or they say, I pushed them because they were shit. So I, rather than us having to be redundant or fire them, I just pushed them till they quit rather than taking the responsibility of, no, you're the dick. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you've got people who are true narcissists as well, they will never admit that they've done anything wrong. So they're a lot harder to spot in your business. Um, and obviously you don't want to go around accusing people of being narcissists when they're not as well. So, Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> it's probably important that um, and there, there may be actually some people watching at the moment that are sort of going, you know, oh, maybe I've wound myself into this position, you know, like I've, I've got to a point where my teams are, are a bit disjointed. That's 100% not how I want to feel or be or see, be seen or anything else. So it's, um, it's probably an interesting one where, you know, without intention and without meaning to, you can actually grow into that type of manager. Mm. Yeah, and again, this I think comes around to self-awareness and we've seen situations where, you know, if you've got, a, especially if you're a um, visionary founder, a uh, big thinker, and run really fast. A lot of um, business owners tend to, for some reason, there's like this common trait of ADD business owners. Undiagnosed. Uh, <laughs> uh, undiagnosed. Undiagnosed. Uh, uh, and they, if you're not self-aware, because you operate at a certain level or you've got your own thing going and you, you are able to handle certain situations, you unknowingly are putting off this vibe or you're you're making people scared or like I said like if you're communicating in high d unintentionally rubbing people the wrong way because you like people to communicate like that but if i communicated imagine i communicated with all of our team in high d every day like if i was just sent like <laughs> that's not going to make people feel very good right and that's they might then start to they they're going to assign a meaning to it and that's going to be the the story they're telling themselves, they're just like, Jade's a dick. She doesn't care about me. Or the, and, and so I think there needs to be when you're, when stepping into leadership role, you've really got to do that work on yourself. And I'd suggest that 
doing 360, if you already have a team, and if you don't have a team, you can do it with your your orbit, your the people that are closest to you, and do like a 360-degree review. Try to get it done anonymously so you can't be pissed off at people. Um, but but if I didn't have, the, like if I hadn't started studying DISC to then have the conversation with my sister, I wouldn't have been aware of that's how it could come across. And then I had to look back at, yeah. oh, shit, is that how I write to myself? Is that how I write to my my EA in the morning? Am I unknowingly doing this? And when I went back, then it became a system for me to write the email, don't press send. Go back, add niceties. <laughs> and, like, and ask how the Can Grammarly do that for you? Um, probably, but I don't do email anymore. That's, that's not my thing. It gives you a little smiley face at the bottom and it tells you what the tone of your oh, email yeah. is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's email is not my jam. I, I, I speak to Kay and she makes the email do the stuff. Yeah. <laughs> she reads email to me. I dictate that and she makes it nice. She's like, I'm going to say it like this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you meant was this. Yes. <laughs> um (laughs) so i i think a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about could really be um avoided or fixed by having the having the the conversation around this with the team so like we found and made a mass difference to your team kyle by having charlotte come in and have this conversation um i think that any business at any stage having that team conversation and understanding different people's personality types, learning styles. We, we even touched on the love languages for how people feel appreciated. Um, really early on is a huge piece to making sure that you have teams that have flowing communication that really is working towards those um, desired outcomes without that friction and the conflict. Um, I even think that if at interview stage, we start asking those questions of people coming in, like, do you know what your learning style is? Do you know how you like to be communicated? Doing the simple tests, like we use the free tests for love languages. You can use the free tests for DISC. The talent dynamics is like 98 bucks, but the value of that, like even I'd say found even with your partner, like if you know the if you know their style and their profile, it's much easier not to get offended. So it, it's something that serves on such a bigger level to, to get that detail. So I challenge everyone that's, that's listening to go, how much do you know about your people? Even if you're, if you're in a team and you're not the manager, what do you know? Like if you sat down right now, I want, I want everyone to think about who's the five people that you deal with most in your work life and take a minute to go, okay, actually I think that they might be this profile. I think that they might like to communicate like this. Oh, shit. Well, actually, if I want to get my message across, maybe I need to communicate like that. Maybe don't just walk up and start spraying them with, like, what you're thinking. Ask them how they are first. Or don't come in telling me about, you know, your kid's dance recital at 9 o'clock in the morning. We've got shit to do. Just tell me what you need. Thinking about that. Um, Charlotte, what other... What other ways could businesses introduce the conversation of communication or what, what do you think they could do to, to take these steps forward? 
So usually the best way to do it is actually start talking to people about it, but rather than just doing it in a way that's like, okay, I'm going to force you to learn a new skill because a lot of people, when they ask them to learn about communication, they're always like, oh, I already know how to talk. Like I've got great friends. I'm a really good communicator. And usually when you're talking to your friends and things like that, or your family, they're a lot more forgiving than people will be in your workspace or they've got that shared history with you. So they already know that, okay, maybe if you say this word, that's just their way of saying this or like, okay, I can leave you alone for five days, but your colleagues can't do that. They, they're they there with you all the time, 40 hours a week. So um, trying to explain it to people rather than like, okay, you're being forced to learn this new skill because we want to improve our like culture or things like this because people already start to feel icky, like they're underperforming or something like that when you bring it in that way is talking to people about, okay, we want, we want our teams to feel more comfortable. We want you to feel safer at work. We want you to feel like you can trust us. And really talk about those emotions that you want people to feel. Obviously, if you've got a whole team of high Ds and steel types who don't like the emotion fluffy stuff, then maybe telling them that like, okay, we're going to do this training and you're going to learn to talk to each other better. They might, they might get on board then. Um, but there's a lot of things that you can do. And some of, the, some of the places that I would start is literally just by looking at that basic communication model that we brushed on really, really briefly at the start of this session, which is teaching people that it's not just the other person's job to understand you. Starting with that and being like, as the encoder of the message, it's your job to think about how the other person's going to receive it is one of the massive things that people don't think about when they communicate. And it's even perpetuated online so much that people have like, there's memes and, you know, like textiles and things like that going around saying that like, oh, why should I communicate with someone if they don't want to listen to me? And I'm like, well, clearly you're not doing a very good job communicating <laughs> if they're not listening. So it's, it's fed into our brains that, you know, that we're doing all the right things by talking at someone, but maybe we need to just take it right down to the basics. And if you don't feel comfortable doing that, obviously there's people that you can ask to come in and do it. Or maybe even if you have a large company who has a HR department, you know, someone in the HR department should be able to run through just the basics of this and just get people talking about one, maybe that they don't know that these things about communication. So kind of breaking it down in that scientific way makes it seem more like, okay, we're going to learn this as like a science or as a thing like as an actual subject rather than just being like, okay, you need to use nice words and you can't say this, which is how a lot of people go about teaching communication. So that, that's my number one tip is just take it down really to the basics. Like you don't even have to go into the complex stuff of like conflict management or things like that, because if you start and just teach people the very basics of how to communicate with one another, a lot of those conflicts will be less because they're already focusing more on the other person. And that's really, at the end of the day, what you need to think about with communication. It's not about you. It's about the other person. Yeah, 100%. And I think uh, one of the things I had with, when I had the recruitment firm is we had everyone's disk profile printed out and stuck to the wall of their desk so that when someone walked up, there was a, like a, literally a reminder of what profile type they were so that you didn't instantly take offense if they communicated in their way but you also knew how to approach it. Like it was just that trigger. And I think it's just the, the, the really simple helping all of your team members understand a little bit more about who they are and what their personality profile is like and, and the differences of them. But I think the really important thing there is also explaining why a team needs all of the different types of personalities. 
And like, if we had a whole team of just blaze people like me running around, uh, and although I'm the queen of get shit done, the like, I've had to cultivate that skill. If we just had all the talkers running around, the the well, let's be honest, the accounting wouldn't get done, the bookwork wouldn't get done, and understanding why why teams need both because we have the unconscious bias to like people like us right but i what i have really found within teams is when people recognize the the opposites and how it makes the whole team work towards the mission that respect level and the willingness to ask for help and the willingness to like seek out someone to ask for their opinion really increases like because when you're stuck with a problem you're like actually the best way for me to move this problem forward is not to ask someone that thinks more like me. I need to go think, I need to go ask someone that thinks the opposite to me and has a different way of processing and looking at something because that's actually going to make us like either explode the innovation or look at it from another angle before we go to market because all of our customers aren't the same either. And probably more importantly, they're going to make me think more about the details because I don't want the details. Just this is a really cool idea. This is why why can't you just get along with me? Just do it. Stop being a naysayer. And it's important, right? So when you're a big picture visionary ideas person, if someone asks you questions or starts probing on the details, you think they're poo-pooing their idea and you think they're a dick. You're like, oh, I'm going to tell them about my idea because they, just, they always hate my ideas. And they think it's about the person. They don't realize it's their way of processing. And once you understand that, that's where the gold is. Because then if you truly want to see your idea come to life, you're like, okay, I need to go speak to my opposite profile because they're going to ask the detail and that's going to make this better. And I need to go speak to the timing person because they're going to know how to put this into sequence for me so it actually comes to reality rather than just being this awesome idea in my head with a million other ideas. And then you can be like, okay, and who can actually get this shit done? So I think it's, again, that it's once we understand that and understand everyone has a genius and understanding what your genius is but being willing to embrace your weaknesses or your non-genius is what pushes us forward. And that allows that conversation of ego to come into play because what, like what we were talking about before, Ego isn't always bad and ego doesn't always come from a place of I'm the fucking best. That's not what the ego is. It can come from a place of uh, fear most, most of the time and, and lack of significance. So if we can have those conversations and park, be able to park the ego and go, actually, I, it's this genius that I need and this, it's this skill. It's like me, not me not having all the answers. It's me going, actually, my genius is really this. My genius isn't the detail. That doesn't mean that I'm an idiot or whatever, because some people think, oh, I must see this all through myself because if I don't, the meaning I assign to that is I'm not as good as someone else. I've had to ask for help, which means I'm not the best in the world. And if I'm the boss, I'm meant to be the best. It's when people can, and I'm going to grab Charlotte for shelving on the agenda, when the, when the, especially a business leader, can shelve their agenda of needing to be seen as the, you know, the, the be all and end all, the guru, and go, actually, the best way for us to serve our five-year obsession is to go, right, what are the other geniuses? And be willing to go, you know what? Hire people better than me at those things and let them shine. Uh, that was my little segue for Charlotte to shelve agendas. 
So shelving agendas was something that we talked about with Kyle's team as well. And it's a really good way to start cultivating like a good sense of vulnerability and safety in your workplace as well. So when you shelve your agenda, it's basically the idea that you're parking your shit at the door so that it doesn't matter whether you've had a bad day or things aren't going well at home, or if it is, you can let someone know in advance that like maybe now's not a good time to talk to you. But for the most part, it's if someone's coming to you for help, particularly it's really good for managers and business leaders, as Jade said, to learn how to do this. And if someone's coming to you for help, rather than trying to push them as to why they don't know the answers or things like that, like it's in our nature to try and solve other people's problems. But in doing that, sometimes we can come across really direct and kind of hurtful if someone's coming to us feeling really emotional and insecure. So if a work mate or colleague or an employee that you have comes to you and they're telling you that they're not performing their best because something awful has happened, it's not really the time to be going, well, why don't you just try doing this and dismiss them and send them out the door? What you need to do in that moment is really sit into what they're feeling as well. And yes, you might be worried about deadlines. Yes, you might be worried that like, oh, do I have to have someone else on to like take on part of their job while they're going through this or things like that? Put it in a box, put it on the shelf and leave it there for the time being. Because as much as you might be stressed and worried, you can already see that someone else is stressed and worried while you're doing this as well. And while they're doing that, if you can sit into that emotion with them and ask them or just be there for them in that space and ask them to explain, well, like how long have you been feeling this way or things like that or like how how much like how much stress like how much stress have you been under or maybe just asking them like do you need do you want my help do you want me to say anything like being able to sit in and ask those questions and get let them lead the conversation and let them tell you what they need that's going to be more productive than you trying to solve their problem straight off the bat and then whilst you might be freaking out and worrying about all these things you don't want to project that onto them. So once you've solved their problem and they're in a the much calmer place, they can then go about their day and still be quite productive in it. And then maybe when it's later at a more appropriate time when they're feeling calm, they're feeling safe and they're feeling trusted, uh, like trusting in you, you can take your shit off the shelf and maybe go over to them and be like, hey, I know you said you're having a hard time. Do you want me to like bring someone in to help you with your work or something like that? rather than in the moment throwing that in their face and then they're just going to start freaking out and worrying about their job and not come back to you looking for answers. So if you can do this really good skill, and it's hard, like this is, this is probably a really difficult one for a lot of people to do, and they use it in psychology and things like that as, a lot as well, is you need to let yourself feel your emotion and know that even though you're feeling stressed at that moment, you aren't important. The person who's come to you looking for help is more important in that moment. And you need to be able to, separate yourself from your emotions and that's where the hard part comes in because a lot of us just feel things and we act out on them but if you can be like okay i'm feeling this way this isn't constructive and really put that to the side for that time for that time you're going to once again allow that person to be vulnerable you're allowing them to communicate openly with you and you're allowing them to form a connection and trust with you which means that in the future if they run into problems they're probably going to come to you sooner and then it's not going to be as much of a problem like they might come to you instead of coming to you when they're like I just can't get anything done. It's going to be two days late or something like that. They might come to you a week before and be like, hey, I'm starting to fall behind. Is it okay if I ask this person for help? And because you've already like helped them once in the past, they're more likely to come to you again. And once again, you start lessening your problems because people start solving them quicker. Beautiful. I think yeah. also with that, Charlotte, when you're talking about the, the – um, the types within um, conflict as well. Like a competitor is often a competitor. Like we often find competitive people 
can they just their natural default is to compete in any situation and if you can have the self-awareness to go actually that is my my natural instinct is to step into that you can go okay where do i need to shelve my agenda on this what is actually going to get the result and this especially as a business leader going oh am i just going into bat for my idea because i always want to win and that's why i'm stepping up do i need to shelve my agenda of wanting to win or be again that ego side i want to be seen as the ideas person or the um the smartest person in the room if you can shelve that agenda and, and recognize it and go actually hmm where do you need to uh lose the battle to win the war sometimes as well and go actually this isn't going to serve right now i have to put this aside recognizing when when that emotion is coming up for you and the same thing goes for those that are um the uh conceder is that the right word no conceder when compromiser. Um, compromiser yeah if you realize that you are a natural compromiser from from programming or or whatever and your natural instinct is you just want to like i don't want to be in conflict i don't give a fuck i'll just i'll just give up uh that's more like avoidant type people who don't want to be in conflict at all avoidant. yeah yeah but if you are committed to the overall outcome and the and the purpose, sometimes you have to shelve that agenda of your personality and go, actually, that's not going to serve this situation. It's really not going to serve the ultimate outcome if I do that. And and being able to separate your your personality from the actual task and the outcome. Is that is that um that you see as well? Yeah, so you can see it in the opposite as well. It's usually when you're trying to shelve your agenda, you're really putting any emotion like fear or things like that, like worry, fear, stress, anger, all those kind of negative emotions that can cause you to act out in a way that's not constructive to what you're trying to do and put it on the side and make sure that, you know, when you're dealing with someone or when you're dealing in this situation that you're doing what is best for the other people in the room. And... I mean, the easy the easy explanation for this is obviously if you're in a situation with a partner or an employee or a colleague, and they're saying like you really hurt my feelings, or you've done this and it's hurt my feelings, which isn't always the best way to communicate that to someone. But and that might hurt you, and you might feel like being like, well, you wouldn't be in this situation if you didn't do this. Taking that moment and putting that on the shelf and being like, okay, tell me how, tell me what I've done to hurt you. Tell tell me what's going on. Like, it's that tell me more line again, isn't it? Is the tell me more line. Yeah. I yeah. love the tell me more line because it actually buys you time to process as well rather than react. So you mm. can respond rather than react. It's like, tell me more. I need to think this through so I don't just go ah! at you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're sorry, Steve. We're sorry that we're evil and we're distracting you by the waves. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I reckon, I don't know about you, Jade, but I reckon I've I've probably heard one really key thing from Charlotte, and I reckon it, it's probably been in just about everything she said, is that if you're going to be a master communicator, it's nothing about me, it's everything about the other person. Yeah. I, re- I reckon that's everything I've heard, this whole hour-ish that we've spoken is... It's all about the other person, whether it's shelving your agenda, your own agenda and shelving your own crap, or whether it's empathizing or even just understanding how your message might be received. 
It's all about the other person. Yeah. Drop the mic. Boom. <laughs> mic drop. Boom, and we're out. We're out. I think that is the mic drop moment. Um, 100%, Kyle. I think, um, Charlotte, is there anywhere that you would suggest any reading or podcasts or anything that you think people could potentially lean on to tap into this skill and start start working on this? Maybe there's a course that you've got coming up even. <laughs> I do have a course coming up for young adults that's going to be launching in April. So that's super exciting as well to help um, young people step into you know, better communication skills earlier in their life so they don't end up running into some of the pitfalls that a lot of us will have come across in our lives. Um, for some really easy stuff that people can use off the back of this, as we're talking about vulnerability and everyone knows um, Brenny Brown has some great resources on vulnerability as well. So I really recommend taking them out of here from a starting point to start those conversations with people as well. Beautiful. And where, because you pump out some great content just in and around the communications top, topic. So what's the best social media for people to find you? At the moment, my best social media to find me on is on Instagram under the coffee unicorn. And I post some interesting stuff about communication. And also I have a little ongoing series of words that people use wrong all the time that we need to fix up in the world. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thank you. Does that include um, Pacific? Instead of specific? I haven't gotten to those ones yet, but we've got <laughs> some interesting ones on there. Uh, yeah, please don't interpret any of my messages. This is why I must use um, voice memos rather than writing because I'm sure the wrong word gets used often. Yeah. Autocorrect. <laughs> it's always stuffing it up. Uh, yeah, it's definitely autocorrect. Siri, when I'm telling her what to write. <laughs> uh, awesome. Well, team, thank you so much for joining us for Beer O'Clock. Beer O'Clock. It's been a conversation about communication, uh, what we can do to build better communication within our teams and our cultures so that we can create happier humans and be more productive and more profitable at work, but most importantly, be the ripple effect of happiness around our orbit. So I just want to say thank you all for hanging out with us. We'll make sure that all the details are in the show notes. But make sure you join the conversation. If you've got any comments, you've seen me popping a few of them up on screen, any ideas or you want to probe a little further, make sure just wherever you're watching this, drop some comments and the three of us will get in there and uh, have a chat back to you. But Most importantly, now, beer recommendations. Oh, Elle always wants beer recommendations. I'll take book recommendations because I, I am, I am uh, loyal. Because I am loyal to my beer. But books, I'll take books. <laughs> awesome great guys thank you so much make sure you have an epic week and and go and refill your cups hey there barrel chasing business owners thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode what would be amazing and allow us to reach as many business owners just like you would be if you could leave us a five-star review on itunes if you feel like you got any entertainment or any value out of today, if you could pop on over, that would mean the world to us. See you on the next show.